Hi, you're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Astle's theology class. Join us as we put out into the deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today, we're talking about what makes a good leader, according to St. Benedict of Nursia. Let's begin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Bonus Points. Before we go any further, I want to mention that this may be our last episode for a few weeks. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, a new Astel is ready to join the world, so I'll be taking a few weeks off. Anyway, today we're looking at one of the most important documents in the history of monasticism, or at least Western monasticism, and that is the Rule of St. Benedict. We're especially going to be reading his descriptions of what makes a good leader. Um, or specifically good abbot, because I think that this gives us a good idea of what any leader should look like. So this is St. Benedict's description of a good abbot, but I think it could apply to any leader, whether that person leads a monastery or a classroom or a family. And of course, we just celebrated St. Benedict's feast day last week relative to when this episode is coming out, so it's kind of a timely episode as well. Now, if you remember, back in episodes 56 and 57, we talked about how monastic principles can also be a guide for us living in the world. And just like we said in those Living Like a Monk episodes, not everything here is directly applicable. The rule of thumb is going to be to take these principles and then apply them in our state of life, our states of life. So that was kind of my thought process as I read through the rule. You know, what advice would really apply to anybody who has authority over others? And of course, as I read it, I mostly had myself in mind. You know, how is this rule going to affect the kind of father I am or the kind of teacher I am? And now that I'm an administrator at the school as well, how's this going to affect that? How does this affect what kind of assistant principal I am? So if you're one of my students, um, just know that this is what I'm going for. You know, I know that I'm not perfect and that I fall short of the mark on a daily basis, but these are some of the principles that I'm at least trying to live out as a teacher and now as an assistant principal. Before we dive in, remember to follow or subscribe to Bonus Points wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode, especially with uh, this hiatus coming up. And make sure you check out bonuspointspodcast.com for lots of extra resources. Okay. So here's how today's going to go. We're going to start with a brief overview of the life of St. Benedict, especially if that name makes you think more of eggs than monks. And then we'll also talk about what we mean when we talk about his rule and why it's one of the most important documents in the history of monasticism. After that, we will talk about what I'd like to think of as the seven habits of highly effective leaders according to St. Benedict. Get it? Habits? All right, so a lot of the stories that we have about the life of St. Benedict come from a series of books that Pope St. Gregory the Great wrote called The Dialogues. These books chronicled the lives of Italian saints, and he dedicated the entire second book to St. Benedict. These accounts, along with other sources, give us a pretty good outline of his life. So Benedict and his twin sister, St. Scholastica, were born in Nursia in 480 AD. As a young man, Benedict went to study in Rome, but then he became disillusioned with the city. 
he found that it was too loud, and both his companions and his teachers were immoral and corrupt. He abandoned his studies and left the city to live as a hermit, eventually settling near Subiaco. Eventually, he developed a reputation as a holy man, which prompted the monks of a nearby monastery to ask him to be their abbot. Also, just in case, um, I don't think I've said this yet, the abbot is the head of the monastery. So the title literally means father, and you can think of abbots as having a form of governance very similar to that of bishops, with the monastery being like his diocese. Um, In fact, sometimes abbots and abbesses even wear miters, which is the pointy hat that we normally see bishops wearing. Anyway, Benedict found that the monks in this monastery were not living up to the ideal of monastic life. He gained a reputation for being a strict abbot, which did not make him popular. In fact, one famous story from his life was when the monks, tired of his high standards, poisoned his wine. Benedict made the sign of the cross over the glass before he drank from it, and it shattered. Another time, they gave him poisoned bread, but a raven carried it off before he could eat it. I mention both of these because all of these symbols, the shattered cup, the raven, the bread, are commonly found in depictions of St. Benedict. After these incidents, he went back to his cave, but didn't stay long. He ended up founding 12 additional monasteries in the Subiaco region. Around 530 AD, he took a few monks and left to start a monastery on Monte Cassino, which is where he wrote his rule. Now you might be thinking, I thought he was strict, so didn't he have a lot of rules? A rule in this context is a document that governs the life of a monastery. As we said back in episodes 56 and 57, monastic life is organized around prayer and work. A rule governs how, what that organization will look like. Benedict's rule became by far the most influential in the history of Western monasticism. Today, there are thousands of monasteries and convents throughout the world that use his rule or modified version of it. These are what we call Benedictine monasteries and convents today. Benedict died a few years later in 547, and thanks to the biography written by Gregory the Great, along with the popularity of his rule, he became one of the most popular saints in Europe, and today he is one of Europe's patron saints. Now, Benedict's rule governs every aspect of life in the monastery. It describes how the schedule should be structured, what you should make your habits out of, even what a monk's diet should look like. But what we're concerned with today is what qualities should be found in the abbot. Most monasteries elect their abbots, so it was important for Benedict that all of his monks knew what a good one looked like. Even though there are plenty of differences between governing a monastery and governing a household or a classroom, I think that many of these principles apply across the board. So what I'm going to do is identify seven lessons or seven qualities of a good leader. Then I'm going to share an excerpt from the rule where Benedict talks about it, and I'll give a little bit of my own commentary, though I don't want to add too much on top of what St. Benedict says, because I think his words stand on their own pretty well. So without further ado, here are the seven habits of highly effective leaders, according to St. Benedict. First, if you want to be a good leader, you need to take responsibility for the people you lead and focus on what matters. St. Benedict says, Let the abbot always bear in mind 
that at the dread judgment of God, there will be an examination of these two matters, his teaching and the obedience of his disciples. And let the abbot be sure that any lack of profit the master of the house may find in the sheep will be laid to the blame of the shepherd. On the other hand, if the shepherd has bestowed all his pastoral diligence on a, on a restless, unruly flock and tried every remedy for their unhealthy behavior, then he will be acquitted at the Lord's judgment and may say to the Lord with the prophet, I have not concealed your justice within my heart, your truth and your salvation I have declared, but they despised and rejected me. That quote there at the end reminds me of Ezekiel 3, which says, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you will have saved your life. St. Benedict also says, Above all, Let the abbot not neglect or undervalue the welfare of the souls committed to him in a greater concern for fleeting earthly perishable things. But let him always bear in mind that he has undertaken the government of souls and that he will have to give an account of them. And if he be tempted to allege a lack of earthly means, let him remember what is written, first seek the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be given to you besides. And again, nothing is wanting to those who fear him. Let him know then that he who has undertaken the government of souls must prepare himself to render an account of them. Whatever number of brethren he knows he has under his care, he may be sure beyond doubt that on judgment day he will have to give the Lord an account of all these souls as well of his own own soul. This is an important one because it's tempting sometimes to become very one-sided or to let things become passive. Like, I'm just up here spouting information, and it's on you whether you get anything from it or not. Or at home, it can be so easy to get caught up in the mundaneness or the million things on the to-do list, and then to lose sight of what matters. So it's important to remember that any power over others, any authority, also comes with responsibility and accountability. The next piece of advice from St. Benedict is that leaders must lead first by example. He says, Therefore, when anyone receives the name of abbot, he ought to govern his disciples with a twofold teaching. That is to say, he should show them all that is good and holy by his deeds, even more than by his words, expounding the Lord's commandments in words to the intelligent among the disciples, but demonstrating the divine precepts by his actions for those of harder hearts and ruder minds. And whatever he has taught his disciples to be contrary to God's law, Let him indicate by his example that it is not to be done, lest, while preaching to others, he himself be found reprobate, and lest God one day say to him in his sin, Why do you declare my statutes and profess my covenant with your lips, whereas you hate discipline and have cast my words behind you? And especially let him keep this rule in all its details, so that after a good ministry, he may hear from the Lord what the good servant heard who gave his fellow servants wheat in due season. Indeed, I tell you, he will set him over all of his goods. The point here with this one is that leaders follow the same rules they impose on others, right? We've all experienced leaders who don't do this, right? We say they have double standards or they're hypocrites or that their motto is do what I say, not as I do. A good leader, on the other hand, holds themselves to the same standard that they hold others. 
to which they hold others, that they hold others to. Point being, if you're going to set a standard, you need to live up to that standard too. This third lesson, and in fact a couple of them, require balance between two things that seem to be in tension with each other. This one is that a good abbot doesn't play favorites, but he also doesn't treat every monk the same. Here's what St. Benedict says. Let him, the abbot, make no distinction of persons in the monastery. Let him not love one more than another, unless it be one whom he finds better in good works or in obedience. Let him not advance one of noble birth ahead of one who is formerly a slave, unless there be some other reasonable ground for it. Therefore, let the abbot show equal love to all, and impose the same discipline on all, according to their deserts. Deserts? Deserts? It's spelled like deserts, but I don't know. Um, let him show the same discipline to all. Another place Benedict says, Let all keep their places in the monastery established by the time of their entrance, the merit of their lives, and the decision of the abbot. Yet the abbot must not disturb the flock committed to him, nor by an arbitrary use of his power ordain anything unjustly. But let him always think of the account he will have to render to God for all his decisions and his deeds. Therefore, in that order which he has established, or which they already had, let the brethren approach to receive the kiss of peace and communion, intone the psalms and stand in choir. And in no place whatever should age decide the order or be prejudicial to it, for Samuel and Daniel, as mere boys, judged priests. Notice here that he's not saying that there is no difference or distinction. The monks have a hierarchy based on how long they've been a monk, and that determines everything down to where they sit at dinner. But the abbot still enforces the same rules on all. You know, this could be its own episode, the difference between equality and sameness, but that's kind of the idea here, is the monks are equal, but they're not the same. This next one also requires balance, and it really convicts me because I know that this one is such a struggle. The good leader balances gentleness and sternness. Benedict says, In his teaching, the abbot should always follow the apostle's formula, reprove, entreat, rebuke, threatening at one time and coaxing at another, as the occasion may require, showing now the stern countenance of a master, now the loving affection of a father. That is to say, it is the undisciplined and restless whom he must reprove rather sharply. It is the obedient, meek, and patient whom he must entreat to advance in virtue. While as for the negligent and disdainful, these we charge him to rebuke and correct. And let him not shut his eyes to the fault of offenders, but since he has authority, let him cut out those faults by the roots as soon as they begin to appear, remembering the fate of Heli, the priest of Silo. The well-disposed and those of good understanding, let him correct with verbal admonition the first and second time. But bold, hard, proud, and disobedient characters, he should curb at the very beginning of their ill-doing by punishments. In other words, there is not a one-size-fits-all solution to discipline. He says that some monks are more rebellious and stubborn, and they need to be treated more sternly. But if a monk is generally trying, they're good-natured, then it's more effective to reason with him and try to encourage him to improve. And all of this has to be done with love. You know, if anything, the abbot needs to love the difficult monks even more. Benedict says, 
Let the abbot be most solicitous in his concern for delinquent brethren, for it is not the healthy but the sick who need a physician. And therefore he ought to use every means that a wise physician would use. Let him send brethren of mature years and wisdom, who may, as it were, secretly console the wavering brother and induce him to make humble satisfaction, comforting him that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive grief, but that, as the apostle says, charity may be strengthened in him. And let everyone pray for him. For the abbot must have the utmost solicitude and exercise all prudence and diligence, lest he lose any of the sheep entrusted to him. Let him know that what he has undertaken is the care of weak souls, and not a tyranny over strong ones. In another place he says, He should hate vices, he should love the brethren. In administering correction he should act prudently and not go to excess, lest in seeking too eagerly to scrape off the rust, he break the vessel. Let him keep his own frailty ever before his eyes, and remember that the bruised reed must not be broken. By this we do not mean that he should allow vices to grow. On the contrary, as we have already said, he should eradicate them prudently and with charity, in the way which may seem best in each case. Let him study rather to be loved than to be feared. Trust me, I know that this is difficult, but one of St. Benedict's recurring themes is that being the abbot isn't really a privilege or a role that any sane person desires. It's a tough job. And part of that tough job requires the abbot to make decisions for the monastery. Again, balance is necessary. Here's our next piece of advice. The abbot has to balance taking advice and listening to counsel, but also making decisions. The monastery is not a democracy, but it's not a dictatorship either. Benedict says, Whenever any important business has to be done in the monastery, let the abbot call together the whole community and state the matter to be acted upon. Then, having heard the brethren's advice, let him turn the matter over in his own mind and do what he shall judge to be the most expedient. The reason we have said that all should be called for counsel is that the Lord often reveals to the younger what is best. Let the brethren give their advice with all the deference required by humility, and not presume stubbornly to defend their opinions. But let the decision rather depend on the abbot's judgment, and all submit to whatever he shall decide for their welfare. However, just as it is proper for the disciples to obey their master, so also it is his function to dispose all things with prudence and justice. So when it comes to big decisions, the abbot should get everybody's advice and then make a decision. His decision may reflect the majority opinion, or it may not. And he should even ask for advice with stuff that's not as important, even if he doesn't get advice from the whole monastery. Benedict says that for smaller things, the abbot should take counsel with the seniors only, for it is written, do everything with counsel and you will not repent when you have done it. This next piece of advice is one that I've always felt strongly about, and that I really, really, really try to emulate. Benedict's advice is that a good shepherd must be close to the flock. A good leader has to know the people that he is leading. He should know their interests, their strengths, their weaknesses, and that can only happen if he spends time with them. And so Benedict says, um, on the subject of knowing his monks well, weak or sickly brethren should be assigned a task or craft of such a nature as to keep them from idleness and at the same time not to overburden them or drive them away with excessive toil. 
their weakness must be taken into consideration by the abbot. And then how do you get to know your monks? You have to spend time with them. So he says, let the abbot's table always be with the guests and the pilgrims. But when there are no guests, let it be in his power to invite whom he will of the brethren. Yet one or two seniors must always be left with the brethren for the sake of discipline. I love that. It's saying, you know, when there are guests staying at the monastery, the abbot should eat with them, right? He should he should dine with them, give them hospitality. Um, but if there's no one staying at the monastery, that doesn't mean the abbot goes to eat alone in his office. He should invite some of the monks to eat with him. But I love that last part. Make sure you leave a few of the older monks to keep the younger ones in line. And last but not least here, for Benedict, leadership is not just based on age. Um, in fact, he says that merit of life and wisdom of doctrine should determine the choice of the one to be constituted, even if he be the last in the order of the community. As one of the younger faculty members and a youngish dad, I'm so grateful for that reminder that I'm not bad at this just because I'm young. Hopefully I'm not bad at it for other reasons, but that's a subject for another time. So there we have it. Seven habits of highly effective leaders according to St. Benedict. I want to close with one final summary that he gives that I think covers a lot of ground. On the subject of, again, what a good abbot looks like, Benedict says, Let him not be excitable and worried, nor exacting and headstrong, nor jealous and over-suspicious, for then he is never at rest. In his commands, let him be prudent and considerate, and whether the work which he enjoins concerns God or the world, let him be discreet and moderate bearing in mind the discretion of holy Jacob, who said, If I cause my flocks to be overdriven, they will all die in one day. Taking this then and other examples of discretion, the mother of virtues, let him so temper all things, that the strong may have something to strive after, and the weak may not fall back in dismay. I like that last part especially. Um, Especially like to temper, to calibrate the kind of work you're assigning. Um, the strong should have something to strive after. You don't want them to get bored. You want even the strong ones to be challenged. But you don't want the weak to fall back in dismay. You don't want it to be so hard for them that they just give up. So through all of this, you probably have the impression that leadership is a tall order, and it is, but it's possible with God's grace. I hope that you've been taking notes if you have authority over others, or you will someday, whether that is authority over a family, a classroom, employees, or, heck, maybe even a monastery. Before we go, I have a few resources to offer you today. I'll have a few links to different pages about St. Benedict's life, including one from the Benedictine Order, the Catholic Encyclopedia, and Catholic Online. You'll also find the Dialogues of Pope St. Gregory the Great, one of the earliest sources about the life of St. Benedict, And finally, I'll have a link to the full text of the rule itself so that you can check it out for yourself. As always, you can find these links and lots of other resources on bonuspointspodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Mr. Astle. Thank you for joining us once again as we put out into the deep to explore the world of theology and beyond.